Welcome to Slacker Motor Radio with Brad and Addison. Based out of the Pacific Northwest, we're talking motorcycles in the motorcycle community, and we're excited to have this hour with you. Here we go. Squeaky over here. Hey, Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, Addison? Oh, not too much. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. It's yeah? Monday and uh, got a little coffee in my hand and doing pretty good. Yeah. Coffee in your hand and nothing in your head. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Thank you for making sure everybody else knows that. No, I, you know, they, it's it's an audio format, so they can't see. How you doing, man? I'm doing Did you have any fun this weekend? I had, yeah, I spent a lot of time with the wife, had uh, my family over, my my uh, mom and my dad were over, and so just had a good good visit. We had a great visit. Good. 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 Uh, but no bike. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. No, no bike. No yeah. bike. They needed to get over. We had a, an event that we were going to go to over the weekend, so that was... Uh, you go yeah, pick it up yourself. Yeah, I go pick it up myself for... Okay. Go over there. Well, we were talking about going over as a family, and my wife would go camping potentially that weekend. But now it's looking like it's going to rain on the other side of the mountain. Yeah, so I'm questioning what everybody else can, is going to do. Has anybody been talking about it? Yeah, Dennis and I had some conversation this morning about the ride. And right now it looks like it's going to be intermittent showers enough to probably continue as planned. Because the trend after that week is to actually become drier. So with intermittent showers and the trend further on drying out a little bit, um, there's a good chance that that it ends up being less. Uh, But we'll revisit on Wednesday. Uh, The big conversation from there is if it ends up staying the same or getting worse on the forecast by Wednesday. uh, It looks like central Washington is very dry. So, for whatever reason, that's like a a dry spot and all this rain we're getting over the next few weeks. And uh, we may just coordinate a ride that kind of goes up there through Spokane area. Some of the the roads and trails up there that really nobody's ever done within our group either. So, it may be an adjustment in course, still three days, but an adjustment in where we're going. Kind of a, you know, a last minute audible. Change it up a little bit and see what happens. Just um, try to find camping along the way, or would you immediately try to book things? I know some guys were going to camp, but would prefer to stay in hotels. Do you see yourself going that route? What do you think? I think we've more or less dialed it into people want to those that want to camp and those that want to do a hotel. There's not a lot of middle ground left. Sure. Um, so the idea on that of hitting drier ground would be uh, just camping where we can. Uh, you know, going. Kind of central Washington, there's all kind of all kinds of uh, BLM land. There's all kinds of campsites. It won't be hard to find a site available. Yeah, yeah. Um, even being Memorial Day weekend, it's not like it's a hot location for everyone to go for Memorial Day as central Washington. So it'll be busy, but there's enough room at those campsites. I think we'll be okay. Uh, the other, you know, the, the follow-up would be if it's slightly rainy where we're going to the point of being, you know, raining all night or... Or being intermittent showers basically 24 hours a day. There, I could be convinced to not bring my tent so I don't have to pack up a wet tent both nights. Yeah, that First night's not bad, right? Fun. Opening a dry tent, sleeping in it. But packing up that wet tent and then opening it the next night ends up being a wet tent internally. 
yeah. on night two when you don't have any time to dry it out in between. So that, that I could be convinced to, to do the hotel game for that if that's And I know you've go. done some 50-mile hikes that have resulted in having wet mornings. I mean, what did you do on those hikes with your tents? Usually on rides or hikes or, or any of the camping situations, the, it may be a wet, dewy morning. But I tend to plan those campouts where it's not pouring down rain if I'm moving. Right. Right. If I'm in one place, I'll put up a tent and leave it there. And if it doesn't move until I go home, I don't care because the inside never gets wet. Yeah. Right? Unless for, unless what you track in makes it a little bit. But it's never a problem. But if I'm moving, I tend to pick or change plans based on weather so that I can stay in the dry. Because, yeah, packing up a wet tent just sucks. It's yeah. real hard to get that right. I have yet to figure out how to pack a wet tent that's wet from rain and be able to unpack it dry, mm-hmm. right? And always after packing and unpacking, it's soaked to the bone. I mean, there's no hope. You're yeah. putting your tent and pad and everything into, you know, a moist towelette and hoping that it doesn't soak into your sleeping bag. Oh. That's basically what it turns moist into. Moist towelette. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Minty fresh. Lemony fresh. Okay. Okay. But, uh, you know, so that's the plan. I think if we if we change plans, move a little further north, kind of go into the drier areas, then I'll still camp because that's the point of sure. changing plans. Yeah. If we kind of stick with it because the rain looks like it's going to be 50% chance the whole time, then I, I'll probably bring the tent on the whim that night one ends up okay. Mm-hmm. John Day is looking like the drier of the locations. I guess it's further north. That would make sense based on our conversation here. But... Uh, from there, it, it looks like it's going to get wet through fields and, and through southern Oregon. Yeah. So if night one is dry, it would be worth camping. I don't care, you know, popping up a dry tent the next night and letting it get wet to come home and dry it out in my garage. I don't care. That's fine. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm game for that. So probably bring it anyway. I've got a bike now that can pack that much gear. So the extra tent and pad really isn't a ton of extra space from what I would bring anyway. Right. So I'll probably throw that in and, and go from there. It's quite the chair squeak. It was. So, <laughs> how many... I know... So, so I, it sounds like I'm not going to be there for this trip. But there was a lot of people what? that... That's not what you said 30 seconds ago, my That friend. is not... What did I say 30 seconds ago? It might rain, so you have to figure out a way to get the bike in a different way than having your family go all the way out. Well, I, I'm just saying that it's harder for me now. <laughs> the situation has changed. And because they can't camp over there while I'm out riding around, then it makes it more difficult. But how many people are going to be going? So we have basically a crew of 13 planned. That includes you, so it sounds like we're at 12. Um, But it looks like we're breaking into two groups at the bare minimum. There's a group that wants to get two extra days, so they may leave Thursday. Yeah. So they can ride Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday kind of a thing. Uh, make it a five-day rather than a three-day trip. So that, that crew's going. Uh, they may or may not change their plans based on weather. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure we won't find out till the day before. Uh, and then the rest of the crew, I imagine we'll have a few bail if weather's rough. Uh, I've already heard a few getting a little bit wishy-washy because of moisture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm willing to bet at the end here we've got a group of four and a group of four. Okay. If not, are... everybody joins together for one group of a rainy eight. Sure. So we probably lost six of the 14. 13. Well, it's still a good-sized group. Do you see them 
Are these all the same people that have gone riding before? This will be basically last year's crew. The core. Yep. Right. Last year was a big group compared to the year. I mean, every year it's grown a little bit. Last year was by far the biggest, and it looks like it's about that crew. That's okay. confirmed. Although, uh, the, the truth is, this trip was shorter, drier, more convenient. The drier part left. And now those that came on because of the convenience and simplicity of this trip right. are bailing. So it's it's a little less convenient when you might get wet. So those those are kind of leaving. We've got a few additions, I, at least one that's pretty diehard. Okay, uh, I know Clark's Clark's in one way or another. Okay, but uh, that's about it from the new guys. So we'll we'll add one to last year's crew, uh, and then the Salem group that's coming. If they end up riding with us, they're adding one extra too, and he looks pretty consistent. So right. It'll be, you know, two more than last year in the end. I think we had about six last year, so we'll move up to eight. If everybody rides together, otherwise it's two groups of four, which it'll be an interesting, it'll be different this year. A little wetter. Uh, what it'll do, especially since we're not taking any time off for it, it'll it'll cause me to plan a, a secondary trip in the summer. So what would you, yeah, yeah, and I can see that, but what would you do differently? There, I know that... Because this is getting larger and trying to appease everybody, I mean, what was your takeaway for planning? Because I know that it kind of comes on your shoulders a lot of the times to do the fine details, I'd say. Sure. But what would you do differently? Would you continue to have large group emails where everybody's included? Or would you find a core group and say, hey, every year it's the same group of six people. And if anybody else wants to come, then they would get the notifications of when and where and and then their input would be valuable but maybe not as critical in the initial the play the, the initial layout of the plan I guess the plan um, for the future I, I mean the end goal of this was kind of starting with buddy uh, the initial goal was just go out with a couple buddies I mean year one was just three of us we went down to the redwoods spent three days came back uh, year two was a much larger trip kind of Maybe we bit off a little more than we could chew. I think by the end of it, everybody was pretty tired after 11 days and 3,000 miles. Everybody was a little tired the last 1,000 mm-hmm. uh, and could have been good with a couple days shorter. Sure. Um, however, I mean, a great adventure, and nobody talks poorly of it, but I think if it were to get planned again, people would try to cut it a little shorter. That was quite an adventure. Um, and then, you know, last year was kind of a sweet spot. I think we had four days, uh, had a pretty good crew. I think that three to four day, three to five, let's say, just for a simplicity and range to answer your question, mm-hmm. three to five day trip that's more or less fully planned with stops and people can figure out where they want to stay and what they want to do from there um, with a day or two of, of planned correspondence uh, for for location corresponding where everybody's going to stay. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how last year's went. We had, you know, night one and night three were... Everybody kind of was on their own. Now, most people coordinated with someone else and ended up in similar spots. There was kind of two to three groups of, of sleeping arrangements. But night two, we all coordinated at the same place because it was a very motorcycle-friendly place. Um, in fact, uh, you know, a shout-out to Conquaville out there. It was, a, it was an awesome place to stay, and they're very motorcycle-friendly. And we all yeah. stayed at the same place. And truth is, I had a great time. We got there, all hung out together, all ate dinner together. It was basically a big group hangout where we didn't have to go back, coordinate from our rooms, Meet somewhere, go back, coordinate, meet, because that's kind of how the other nights end up. When everyone's in a different place, everyone kind of goes to where they are, meets for dinner, goes back, maybe meets for, you know, hanging out in the evening for a campfire or whatever, and everybody right. goes back, right? It's kind of this jumping to and from 
occasions. Whereas when you're all in the same place, you're just hanging out the whole night, chatting about the day, having a good time. So there's something to be said about everybody in the same place. So I think it's important to coordinate a night or two of that at least. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, it's not, not necessary. But this location and dates game this year was a little harder. With a group of 13, it got interesting where everybody had different opinions. Nobody really voiced them until it was too late. Um, you know, we, we'd have votes. We'd have where it was 50-50 votes. It really wasn't leaning one way heavily or the other. So a decision had to be made. And then after that decision was made, issues were brought up with, with decisions. So I think it's important that for the future for me to, to plan the days, plan the locations, lock that in, and then we can coordinate the specifics from there. And ride planning in general, I think, is important that way. Uh, one thing I always look at is fuel stops. Right, sure. We've got crew that, that's got different ranges, so it's important to look at you know how far you can go. Make sure there's a fuel stop for the bikes that can only go 100 miles. There's a lot that goes into planning an event like that. I mean, you've only hit on a few of the items, but uh, taking in consideration everybody's ride and what they're either comfortable with riding in a day or what their motorcycle is able to do in that said day, but maybe it has to stop more. Whatever the case may be, as where you're going, that there's some sort of a destination or certain types of rides, certain roads, the different uh, things that the people may enjoy, like ice cream and hot tubs, Daryl. And, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. So I really appreciate you you sitting down and going through that. I know everybody does. So what... uh, this wasn't a turnoff this year because, like, there was there was a little bit of a debate um, as to what was going to happen this weekend. Last week, Did, was that a little bit of a turnoff or just a detour? Uh, for this year's ride, I think it, it threw a wrench in spokes. I think yeah. we, we brought, I think that pretty much definitively split into two separate rides. There was a group that wanted to ride more, and kudos on them. And due to the scheduling, it just didn't work out with the main core plan. And so it'll probably be the same route, but they're going to go two days early. And that's cool. And we probably will cross paths. We're kind of all going to the same area. It's a good chance we all cross paths at some point. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it, it definitely showed the the need to, you know, with, with six to eight people, you can coordinate pretty closely and up to about a month in advance have everything locked in. That's kind of what we did this year. It was about a month in advance, maybe three weeks in advance. Everything we decided this is what we're doing. Yeah. And then, you know, a week, two weeks, I guess no, it was about a month in advance, and then two yeah. weeks in advance, some wrenches got thrown in there of, of hey, well, this may not work. Um, and at that point, it was kind of, in my opinion, too soon, or too too close to the trip um, to, to make any significant adjustments, at least. Uh, so we kind of were able to split it into two groups, and, and truth is, with a group this big, you know, we've got people bailing here and there. It may not be as big as it looked in the beginning, but with a group of 13, two groups is probably what we need anyway. Yeah. That's a big group to coordinate and, and keep track of to where it should be two groups keeping track of each other. Um, but it, it showed that, you know, as this gets bigger and grows and becomes more popular, everybody's kind of inviting their friends. Started with just group work buddies, and now it's work buddies and friends, and now it's work buddies and friends' friends. And every year it gets a little bit bigger. It kind of drops another tier down where more people are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's showing that we kind of got to, we know it's always around this weekend, but we've got to set our dates and our locations, you know, a good four months in advance. And then from there, everyone can coordinate where they want to stay, what they want to do, camp or hotel or 
eat or bring food. I know, you know, on the bigger trip for cost reasons, a lot of us brought our own freeze-dried food, you know, different things that others didn't want to. So people were coordinating dinner plans, others were cooking at camp, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of went, you know, it went really well that year, but there was, you know, five of us. So yeah. it wasn't incredibly hard to, to schedule around five people. What was more fun? Small group or larger group? Well, last year was the largest group, and I thought our, our stay at the Conkoville was a blast. Everybody hanging yeah. out in the same spot, having dinner together. The get-togethers at the end are fun. The rides themselves, I don't think it matters. We have a really good crew that rides at their own pace, whether they can or whether they want to be in front or at the back or wherever. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the twisties, everyone rides where they're comfortable. And when it come, and then we get to the gas station, you know, 100 miles later, yeah. and everyone waits for the crew to make sure we're all on board and everybody's good. Sure. Kind of keeps an eye on their rearview mirror for the guy behind them. Stops at any any turn. Everybody stops and waits. We don't just bust through the next turn. We make sure everybody knows when we're making any cross traffic or, or some deviation. So uh, the ride itself really doesn't get any different. I, I haven't found that it's lost a value. Granted, we haven't broke the 10 mark. And I hear that more than 10 on a group ride is is a parade, right? At that point, you've lost your fun, twisty, you know, people people either disappear or break into their own groups. Is what sure. needs to happen. So, you know, I prefer not to ride in the kind of the solo, everyone on their own will meet at the end of the day game. I like being part of a group, stopping for gas, chatting, having lunch yeah. together. I think that's part of the fun of it is yeah. kind of dissecting your day, um, dissecting the morning, whatever it is, you know, getting to a viewpoint and having everyone there to sit and chat for a minute and look over and that, that community of it is something that's really important to me. Um, when I ride, I like the community of riding. I'll, I'll go and ride all day by myself, but riding with a group is significantly more fun for me. Sure. You know, and, and I think that's important. So I, it'll be an interesting game. I haven't had an issue either way. I like the bigger groups at the end, the community at the end, the, you know, a little bit of drama that came out this year. Um, you know, no matter where it came from is, is little concerning. I think it had a lot to do with such a big group and trying to coordinate all 13 opinions. Right, and that's why I was asking if you would if you would take it on and say, hey, I know that this core group of four or five people would be the ones that are going to be going and that have contributed in the past and care and that they get back to me on it. So I'm going to get them involved in this planning, and then we're going to send out an email that says, hey, this is the plan. If you want to join... Let us know, and if you see something that we have missed, because part of this is being able to go to certain areas and be able to get on the good roads in that area or try out the ice cream shakes at a certain <laughs> gas station, whatever it may be. Fields. you got to stop at Fields. And, and I told <laughs> Dave that, and he's kept it going. And so, but, but you get a little bit of that feedback, but you've already said this is the bones of the trip, and then... We're going to say that in two weeks, no more changes. And do you see that being a benefit? Do you see that changing how you plan this in the future? 100%. It'll be, and that's what I kind of found. That's what happened a month ago is I kind of just said, hey, here's the plan. Yeah. And then when the two weeks, you know, after that, there was a little wrench thrown in. It was, uh, at this point, we're committed. This is the plan. But I, I found with that that I needed to give the heads up or set the plan a little further in advance to allow that conversation. But I, I think you're right. There's probably a core group of four guys that are pretty consistent that I should be consulting with. 
mm-hmm. when creating that plan. The problem is from when we initially started, when I initially started setting this up with that crew, it was basically the, that core group of four minus one who, who wasn't concerned, kind of just wanted, I'm along for the ride. Yeah. And that was fine. Um, and so that, it was hard to foresee the time off issues, the, the addition of extra people that suddenly needed that extra support on planning, let's call it. Um, you know, and we've kind of, unfortunately, we did change slightly the schedule to help support those that had issues with time off and then were added to the crew because everyone else was kind of, I'm, I'm game for whatever. And then when it got down to, you know, the final day, the game for whatever, it's, I would be the same way. It's hard to hard to say. Oh yeah, it turns out I was okay. Wasn't necessarily okay with everything, you know. I, too much change. Okay. And so I think that's where I just I need to make a decision earlier. We need to go with it, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And you make it or you don't. Right. You know. So I'm, do you see there being a benefit in the safety aspect with a smaller or larger group? I see, and I know this is. Somewhat controversial because it depends heavily on who you ride with, but I see a benefit of a group. Sure. No, yeah, um, I just didn't know if there's if a there, small, I, intimate three guys is better, or does age come into that, or no. what comes into that as far I mean, as what is safe? It's all about the riding style. Right. I know where you're going with this, um, so we'll get into that, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, we've got a group that rides pretty conservatively. We've got guys that do track days and can ride. Yes. And there's times where the roads are good and they're going to go. And I kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, the rest of us, myself included, I'm not a track day guy I would love to be. Yeah. Haven't gotten to that level um, where I can, you know, can comfortably, especially on the bike I just recently bought, right? I've got like a month's worth of riding on this bike. Not comfortably going to hit corners at the the peak, the the jagged edge of what that bike can do. Right. I'm just not there yet with that bike because I haven't learned really made for that exactly in its current setup. Um, and so it's one of those that that everybody rides at their own pace. Everybody rides where they're comfortable. We've had uh, you know last year we we had a couple of choppers, one of them just without dragging pipes and and floorboards could not corner like the others. And rode at his own pace, had no problem with it, and I think sure. he had a great time. Was yeah, planning yeah. to come this year. So um, I haven't heard of the confirmation there, but I think he's still coming. And we loved riding with him, and it was a blast to have him at, the, you know, at every stop. We stopped for viewpoints. It's not like we were gone and disappeared and didn't wait for him. I yeah. mean, we were all there for all those moments that kind of did that, that had that community. Um, but I think that there's definitely a... If you want my opinion, the reason it is very... Our group is very good, our core group. Riding comfortably and safely and not doing things that are, you know, stereotypically stupid for motorcyclists is probably because of our potpourri of people. I mean, we've got age groups that range from, you know, somewhat fresh to riding to guys that have ridden for 40 years. You're right. We've got, you know, bikes that range from 500cc to... 1200cc we've got just bike styles that range from chopper to sport bike mm-hmm. i mean sport touring i guess is as sporty as it gets with the crew we've done in the past but you know we, we ride with all types yeah you know if there's not a we're not a bunch of sport bikes trying to push the limit we're not a bunch of choppers 
cruising slowly and in scaring cars, which sometimes happens. We're just this weird mix of different makes, models, sizes, and ages that kind of, as a collective, keep us in the best of all groups. Sure. Um, and I know what you're alluding to is today we, we discussed and, and kind of went over a, a uh, IIHS motorcycle safety statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of went over a lot of that data. Driven by actually a, a, something I found, an article I found showing a lot of the, the motorcycle. And I, I realize we're getting into something that's a little bit more morbid. I know my wife probably doesn't want to listen to any of this. However, by the end, I think we'll show that, that it's really not such a dangerous sport. Um, but it's a little more morbid because we're talking kind of the motorcycle. A lot of this data is based on fatalities. Sure. Um, a lot of the basic accidents, fender benders, just aren't documented in a way that can be used for data sets. Mm-hmm. And that's both for vehicles, you know, four-wheeled vehicles as well as motorcycles, tricycles, whatever. Um, they're all basically run ba- on, on fatality wrecks. Um, but we got a bunch of data on that. And okay. so Brad and I have kind of gone over it. And thought we'd kind of discuss some of the weird quirks that we found in it. And the first one I wanted to go over is there's a kind of a ranking here by the uh, the insurance agencies on motorcycle fatalities per registration per state. And it's broken down pretty well. It's got each state, uh, the number of registered motorcycles, the number of fatalities per year, and uh, and the number uh, – and then they break it down to simplify uh, fatalities, kind of a percentage, fatalities per 10,000 registered bikes. So they allow you to kind of break down how dangerous that state is to ride in is the main point that I saw in the initial database. Okay. But I think we can get a lot more information from it. And I guess just, I know it popped up when I first handed this to Brad. Um, but what do you see first? What, what are your two, what, what catches your attention on this, Brad? I, okay, so I see the extremes. I see the, the worst and the worst is in most fatalities per 10,000 registered motorcycles, as well as the least fatalities per 10,000 motorcycles. Those are the two that kind of just stand out first off. You know, you got Mississippi. Why? Mississippi has the least amount of registered motorcycles and has the most fatalities. Okay. For better, I'm just. It's just an in- interesting observation. So, what is it about Mississippi that? Well, what's the least, or the least three? Alaska, South Dakota, and Montana. So, what's the trend there? <clears throat> when I look at that, I see three cold states. Where you're may have a lot. I mean, Montana's got a ton of bikes. Yeah, it does. The numbers there are phenomenal, and it is the least has the least issues. Now it's uncrowded roads. Not a lot of obstacles on the side of the roads. A lot of open Are they road. straight roads. A lot of probably more straight roads. Is Mississippi straight roads? I don't think it's all that dissimilar. Probably road orientation wise. Okay. However, I, 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 it's a lot warmer in Mississippi. Right, you're going to be riding a lot more through the year. So although yeah, you have but there's less nobody bikes, there. There's only twenty eight thousand motorcyclists. Motorcyclists. However, there's more cars. Right. If there's yeah, less motorcycles, there's more cars. Mississippi is not. We an don't have that. You're throwing out statistics that are not in front of our face. Oh, we know that there's more population in Mississippi than Montana. Maybe. Uh, we know that. People wise, there's nothing in front of me. All right. Okay. Similarly, Texas is the number two. We know there's a lot of people in Texas. There's a lot of motorcycles in Texas, but it's the number two 
with uh, with fatal accidents. Wait, wait, wait! But do we put Mississippi in the same boat as Hawaii? What do you mean? Hawaii has about the same amount of registered motorcycles. Okay, and has half the number of fatalities. Sure, that's fair. Why does Mississippi have? That's a good question. I just don't. I. I. That's something that surprises me. But the no. first thing that I actually looked for when I looked at this was where is Oregon? I live in Oregon. Where sure. is Oregon on the list? In Washington, right? That's the other one. Those are the two. We're right there on the edge of each. Oh, don't say right there on the edge. Washington is significantly safer and better. We're on the edge. Oh, there's a whole six numbers in between. Six how states far, in between. How can I see Washington from where I'm sitting? Yes, I can. Oh, locationally, yes. That's what I'm talking but about. But safety-wise, Washington's That's all better. I'm trying to say right now is that I'm Oregon and Washington hit home. Yeah, and Washington's just better. Okay, well, all of us are, <laughs> at least we're in the in the better half of this That's fair. Sheet. Both of them are, are pretty good. And truth be told, if we're talking, you know, hot to cold, Oregon and Washington, I mean, there are cold months, there are rainy months, but... There's a lot of daily, year-round riders in those in Oregon and Washington, in the Northwest. It really doesn't get that cold like Central United States would. Mm. So it's you know you probably have a lot of these riders. It's also interesting to note that there's almost a hundred thousand more registered motorcycles in Washington than Oregon. That I don't know the population breakdown between the two, but I don't think it's drastically different to that point of almost a fifty percent increase. Mm. So I, that was an interesting note that I saw. Um, but what I saw more interestingly is a lot of these, if you look up at the top of the list, it's warmer states, right? Mississippi, Texas, Carolina, Florida, Arizona. And then you have to get all the way down to almost halfway through the United States, number 20, to find California, which in most people's opinion is the ideal location to ride motorcycles, right? 70 degrees year round, maybe Uh a little hotter for a month, but we're not talking Reading. Okay. That's but, fair. Yeah, but I'm just saying, in California as a state, it's a very comfortable climate most of the year. Okay. If you had a motor, if I had a motorcycle in California, I would ride a lot more than I do now. You just don't get any rain. Sure. You get less rain in the winter. Yeah. You end up with warmer summers. Sure. And the breeze on the coastal areas is very nice where it doesn't get too hot. Warm up ocean water, yeah. So it's not, it's not too bad to where a lot of Californians ride. I mean, even statistically here... It's significantly higher than any other state with, when it comes to registered motorcycles. That's fair. I mean, Ohio is up there, and that's about it. I mean, you get Ohio and Florida. Well, those aren't even close, though. They, yeah, but they're still not even close. But those are the next two highest. I get that. That have registered motorcycles. So there's a lot of people with bikes in California, yet it's almost at the middle of the list. So it's, if we're talking just straight numbers-wise on fatalities, it is high. It is, in fact, the highest... Nope, second highest. Florida apparently is significantly more dangerous. Um, however, it's lower on the list because of that volume. You know, 10,000. It's basically six, per ten, six people per 10,000 bikes, which is pretty low. Yeah. Um, and if you want my opinion of why this list lays out, and maybe Mississippi falls into this category, maybe that's why Montana also falls into the category it does. Because I think it's rider education. I think you look at California, and people are very aware of motorcycles. There's lane splitting. Drivers are educated about motorcycles. Sure. They know they're coming. They look for them. They pay attention. Because if they don't, they're going to get scared when one whips by them on the freeway, Mm -hmm. even in traffic. 
right? They're very aware. The, the, the whole community of California, of that state, is aware of motorcycles. They look for them and they pay attention. Motorcyclists themselves, I would imagine, having to ride in somewhat more congested areas, are more aware of their surroundings and are better educated in kind of those emergency skills. Um, you kind of look in, I know Oregon and Washington have pretty stringent motorcycle safety rules. Ohio, I know, does as well, based on what I've heard from, from other podcasts and people that live there. Those are all really low on the list. That may be why Montana, although having a fair number of registered motorcyclists, is safe, as they've got good motorcycle rules. I don't know. haven't lived in Montana, and I don't know their motorcycle laws and education for the locals that register those 300-plus thousand motorcycles. But that would be my – that's what I interpolate from this data. That's what I understand when I look at this, is that obviously the warmer you are, the more people are on the road, the more of a chance you have to be in an accident – That's similar to any sport, anything, right? If you drive more, you're more likely to get in a wreck on a car. If you skydive more often, you're more likely to have an issue at some point, right? If you fly more often in a plane, you're more likely to have problems in a plane. Well, so, okay, so I don't even know where you got this data. It has nothing on it. There's no – it doesn't tell me is this per year? Is this in the last 10 years? Is what, What is this? I think that there's a lot more to this data than what we see. I mean, we were just talking about, uh, you know, potentially looking at whether or not they have seasons. But then also getting into rider safety. Well, what about other demographics such as gender and age? Brad, that's a great lead-in. That's exactly why I handed you as well the IIHS. Uh, motorcycle, basically fatality facts of 2017 for motorcycles and ATVs. Now, I've gone ahead and pulled the ATV data because we're not as concerned with that. You pulled it? Um, it's out. I can't reference it. It's not it. in there. No, there's no reason to worry about ATVs. I was wondering. Yeah, I know, but this is a two-wheeled podcast for now. We'll grow as time goes on. We're not We've already about talked about wheels. a three-wheeler. I just want you to know that. I know, but we don't worry about that. He can ride whatever he wants when he buys and restores it, and then we'll talk about it. And when he finishes restoring it, we'll talk about it. Don't look at me like that. I like awkward silence. This is an audio podcast, man. you got to talk more. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, what did you find? So I highlighted really- a couple things in this okay. day. First thing, it kind of starts off about the correlation, which doesn't seem to be one, between... Vehicle, passenger vehicle and motorcycle deaths between 75 to 2017. Uh, and it basically states here that in 2017, 14% of motor vehicle crash deaths were, uh, were due to motorcycles or were involved in motorcycle. And that's, uh, you know, it's basically been growing since 97 slightly. But if you look at the data on this, and I realize this is a, not a visual media, but you can see that in, in the mid 80s, Early 80s, the numbers were pretty high. Clearly, there was a large enforcement of safety, motorcycle safety courses, the MSF courses and and, uh, tracks and all these things to help educate riders about safe motorcycle riding. Because you can see that drop in the 90s. And then I think that prior to the 2010 decline, you can see it was growing a little bit. I think that's because the economy was good. People were buying bikes. There were more people on bikes. There's a dip in that 2010 area, I would assume, due to the economy issues. Sure. And it seems to be fairly steady 
small growth, then drop, then small growth. Now it looks like it's dropping over the last two, three years. Mm -hmm. It's pretty steady and and moving in that direction to where it's stated a basic 14% um, of all crashes being motorcycle-related in that data. So I thought that was interesting that you look at the vehicle data, you kind of see an opposite trend where it was all over the place from 75 to 2005, where it just, you know, motor... Vehicle-related crashes were through the roof, then down, then up, then down, then up. And then it looks like that early 2000s really dropped to about 2010 when those passenger vehicle-related deaths were at pretty much an all-time low for them. Um, but it looks like in the last few years, five years or so, it's really gone up. So I thought that was an interesting trend that there's been a jump in the last five years yeah, why would of passenger be? vehicle occupant deaths. I'm not sure why that is, but I thought that was an interesting trend. Whether that's due to substances, or they don't really get into any of the actual data in this. This is motorcycle-based data, so there's not really anything to dive into actual data-wise. Mm. But we could probably guess as much as we want. And I we'd be right I like about to some speculate. of them. I like to speculate. Speculation's always fun. Okay. Now, the other thing I saw that was really interesting to me is that 31% of motorcycle injuries, fatally injured motorcycle drivers were operating without a driver's license, a valid driver's license. Now, when we're talking 14% of the total uh, accident-based fatalities or crash-based fatalities, 31% of those, of that 14%, should not have been on the road anyway. It was just bad choices. Right, but I mean, it still went from 3 to 14, so that doesn't account for all of that change. I think it's Tesla. I think Tesla's being on the road is the problem. It's just taking out bikes left and right. I'm just just saying it kind of correlates with the, the time. Anyway. Well, and I, I mean, it's interesting to look at that the percentage of those fatalities with valid driver's licenses has dropped. And, of course, subsequently that means the no valid license has gone up over the last, I guess this goes from 08 to the last 10, 10 years or so. That that's a bigger issue, that people are riding bikes without valid Driver's license. No, wait, wait, wait. But what about the size of the motor? I mean, those are increasing. Everybody's wanting yep. a bigger motor anymore. So it gets into that. Do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I do. Go ahead. Well, I'm just I'm just looking through that, and you can definitely tell that uh, the motorcycle deaths by motorcycle engine size. You know, you have the zero to one thousand cc, which seems to be trending downwards. You had the greater than 1,400 cc, which was pretty much 0%, and that's growing, and that's actually growing at a pretty steady and rapid rate of kind of leading a lot of these um, these death totals here. And so, and it's just interesting. I mean, for me, this kind of goes back to a lot of our conversations. What size bike do you really need? Do I need that big, big motor? Do I need it to be, do I need to go super fast? I, for me, I just love to get up to speed quickly. Now, can I do that on my little 250? No, but I enjoy right. it in the twisties, so... It's interesting as well. I, I agree with you on this, that, that maybe you don't need a... Four, I mean, clearly the 1400cc and up is the is the class that's growing in, in fatalities. But I also think it's interesting that the one that's dropping and it continues to be the lowest, although actually I guess that's not true, but 1400 and bigger is kind of a new development in motorcycles... It's hard to find one that big historically. Um, but if you look kind of midway through that data, you'll see that, that the 1,000 to 1,400 is steadily dropping 
whereas the zero to a thousand is kind of leveled off, and that that class continues to drop. And I I feel like that's just the average educated rider. I think uh, if you look further into the data, it actually breaks it down by motorcycle type. Okay. And I think it's really interesting that the sport and the super sport classes tend to have have some issues. If you look at the, the vehicle size, obviously when it comes to off-road, it's all less than 1,000 cc because I don't think they classify any off-road bike as greater than 1,000. At that point, it's a touring bike. Okay. Which drops into that rank but is generally more than 1,400 cc for the touring because I think it picks up a lot of the large cruisers. Uh, the basic cruisers fits all those categories, and it's pretty steady throughout. Same with the uh, same with the uh, the sport bikes, or sorry, the sport touring on there is pretty steady, sub fourteen hundred. There's not a lot of sport touring bikes that are above fourteen hundred cc. Um, but really, that touring class is what what controls most of the the uh, the greater than fourteen hundred cc class. Sure. Now, we were talking about it earlier, and it, it breaks it down. I realize we're going through a lot of data, and I hopefully this translates in an audio format to something that's understandable, and we're not just blasting off information that nobody cares about. But it also talks about the age groups, and I don't. we haven't really got into that, but the age group that seems to be the safest is basically 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, it's pretty darn close between the 30 to 40 group and the 40 to 50 group. On their uh, on the lack of fatalities there, the younger group has been declining, but is still a higher group. But really, it's the fifty and up group that seems to be growing and growing pretty steadily. Sure, in motorcycle fatalities, and that's something that's concerning. And I wonder how much that correlates with the large touring bikes, because really, in the fourteen hundred cc class, you've got you know forty six percent of the fatalities based on cruisers fit in there, but 92% of all touring bike fatalities. So that's probably your your Goldwings, your large, you know, yeah. Harleys, your large Yamaha V Stars, you know, your yeah, your big a bikes. Large number. And that's almost all of those touring bikes, right? I mean, touring bikes fit into a class of a lot of different bikes, and there's a yeah. lot of bikes that fit in that sub in that 1200 cc range. And that's only 8% of the fatalities in the touring Well, class. but you look at the next, uh, it, and we're going to have the link for this. we got to have the link yep, for this. Yep, we'll, I'll post the, the link podcast. for this. But you can see that in this same one, it's saying, you know, 63% of those touring fatalities are in the 50 and up age yep, range. that's what I'm saying. This is yeah, a de- I mean, definite correlation on that age group. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, get a smaller bike as you get older. There's some of that. I mean, I, you know, I had, everyone knows I had the Scrambler for a while and you yeah. through those forums and it's the gamut that the, the Triumph Bonneville class runs in age groups is pretty incredible. You'll get, you know, brand new 16 year old riders that want a Bonneville and then you'll have guys that are like, you know, that have had their large cruisers, that have had their large, adventure touring bikes, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that are just ready to, you know, it's more bike than they need. It's heavier than they can handle. If it goes down, they can't pick it up. They want something that's 900cc. That class of that 900cc kind of naked, granted it was very vintage styled, which probably helps in 
running that that range of age groups, but it was a very open age group with regards to to who would ride it. I mean, it was it was a wide range. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, even when I'm out on the highway, especially on these trips, if there's a 1400cc or larger bike, it's predominantly someone older. I mean, I, the age group on that bikes would be in the 50 and up age group for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's a few exceptions here and there, but that would definitely be the, you know, the, this this makes sense. The data I'm looking at here on motorcycle type by age group is makes sense. Yeah, well, that's what we see it demographically. Yeah, you're I mean, out riding around and you're and people are having fun and and I'm not suggesting that they don't that uh, as we get older that we shouldn't have the bike that we need or want, but I think it kind of points towards do we need that? I mean, is that the kind of riding we're going to be doing? And I think we just need to ask ourselves what we're going to be using that bike, or is this something that I could still pick up and move around and feel comfortable on, or? Yeah. Am I following my buddies that are, you know, maybe different different ages or different riding experience? So I think a thing- lot of us get back into the sport. And I think that maybe some of this is that, you know, the big bikes in the 70s and 80s are different than they, the big bikes of the 2000s. So those... Large displacement motors in the you know eighties were they were fast, but they're not the same as when I'm like, oh, I got to get the biggest bike I can in the eighties. You get on the biggest bike you can in the two thousands, and it's like, whoa, this is this is a beast. Well, even then, I, I mean, in the eighties, it wasn't till mid eighties, late eighties that you really even broke the fourteen hundred touring mark. I mean, the the Goldwing was an eleven hundred till mid eighties, twelve hundred until the late eighties. But is that considered a touring or a cruiser? Because we've talked about the Golden this. would be a touring bike, definitely by class. Okay, okay. I would say like the the big V Star fourteen hundred or what is it now sixteen hundred that they've got now. Mm-hmm. I, Yamaha just redid it, and I can't remember for the life of me the name of their their new big touring bike. But there's definitely a specific class of those fully bagged, fully optioned touring bikes, and you know it's kind of the electric glides, the these big bikes that that are set up to just hit the highway and go. Sure. Which, in my opinion, is kind of concerning in and of itself. Because when when I'm on the highway, I mean, truth be told, when it comes to my commute at least, the highway is where I generally feel the, le- the most safe. Because I've got an entire lane, I can see a fair distance in front and back, sure. and no one's pulling out. I mean, if somebody's pulling out in front of me, they're already going close to my speed, right? They're moving down the highway. They're not coming out of a stop from a side street. They're moving at a, at a good clip next to me, and I can I can anticipate that, use my brakes or accelerate whatever makes sense to to avoid that and be be aware of my surroundings. Now I I'd rather get into from here what we think the reason for these fatalities. I don't want this to be a you know a scare conversation. Uh, the point of this is not to scare anyone away from riding. The yeah. point of our podcast is to bring more people to the community, help educate, and have these conversations with the community. Um, but the one thing I wanted to also bring up, because I think it relates to what I would like to get across at the end of this at least, is there's a, a statistic in here that's motorcycle deaths by um, type and gender. And basically it talks about male and female, and it talks about driver and passenger. And it's really interesting to me that one of the large numbers there that I see is that passengers in the data that also, I mean, there's further data that talks about just passenger fatality um, 
with helmet use and fat passengers, it brings the passengers up, and the percentage is really high of passenger-based fatalities. Yeah. And and that's something that really concerns me. And I know, I mean, I try often for date night or whatever it is to get my wife to go for a ride on the bike rather than taking the car. And truth be told, for any legitimate type of ride, only once have I succeeded because my wife's concerned. One, she doesn't feel entirely comfortable on the back of a bike. Granted, my new bike has a sissy bar and a backrest and might be a little more comfortable for her. But I look at this data and, and turns out once again, she's right. You know, I look at that, that, that really that passenger fatality rate is really high. And, and it just concerns me because I think when I we think have someone on the bike. education, yep, though. When we have someone on the bike, we need to be aware that they're there and ride extra safe and extra careful. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, you can't whip around corners. You can't show off. The, I mean, this possibility of fatality is is legitimate on a motorcycle. It's not, you know, a fender bender in traffic. It's not, you know, the bike goes down and, you know, the car gets hit or st- turns sideways. You hit a rail, oh well. Mm-hmm. If a bike hits a rail, you're going to be pretty seriously injured. The consequences of our actions are significantly greater. And you look through the data, it also talks about the single vehicle versus multi-vehicle crashes. And it is not a low percentage. I think it was about 40%. Of the the fatalities are due to single vehicle crashes. And in my opinion, as a motorcyclist, there are times where I realize, and I make this comment and have had debates with people, that you can always avoid issues if you're being fully 100% diligent in your awareness. I realize that that's not always true. However, on a single vehicle incident, it's most of the time. Mm -hmm. Most of those are going through a corner too fast, braking too late. You know, some something that could have been very readily avoided by riding a yeah. little bit safer, by not trying to get such an adrenaline rush. And so I kind of look at this data, and my big out- takeaway from it is that I see a lot of things that, you know, that, that inherently not having a cage around you mm-hmm. is more dangerous. I fully understand that. I'm yeah. not going to deny that it's a more dangerous game. However, I also know that when I ride, I'm more aware than even when I'm, on my, I'm in my car yeah. aware of the motorcycles. It definitely changes the way I ride and the way I commute when I'm on a motorcycle and I'm more diligent if, I mean, because the risk, the end risk is so much higher, right? A fender bender is a lot worse on a bike. Um, should I be that way? No, I should be just as diligent in both. But I realize that most of the cars on the road are the same way, right? That they're not as, as aware as they possibly could be. Um, but I see a lot of things in here in the statistics that can be avoided. I, for me, you know, the statistics don't bother me. It's not gonna. It's not uh, scaring me personally, and I see a lot of stuff in here that maybe it could, but it makes me want to respect the motorcycle and motorcycling in general a lot more, and have more understanding of. Okay, so I'm looking at the different age groups, and I see that. At a young age group, that there's more of a chance for issues, as well as an older age group. Well, I'm kind of in that middle age group right now, but as I get older, I'm going to go into and transition into one that has statistically had more issues in the past. Okay, so what do I need to do to stay fresh? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm not a statistic and that I enjoy what I'm doing long into my elder years? Also, at the same time, I have a kid that I want to get into motorcycling, and it's super critical that we get him into it, my son into it, at a point where 
He is educated as a motorcyclist, understands and respects the motorcycle and what it can do, and we get him on the right motorcycle that allows him to be successful, have fun, and enjoy motorcycling the rest of his life. So that's what I get out of it. I get out of it that I need to be paying attention of what I'm doing in the future for both myself and my son. And I think going back a couple episodes to, to Max's comments of his 250. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's enough bike. Yeah. Could he use more power? I'm sure there's moments he could use more power. Well, he and possibly wishes power. he could yeah. want more power. I didn't understand until I got this little 500 that we went on a ride this Saturday and I went with a couple guys that had both bikes significantly more powerful. One significantly, I mean, one was more powerful, the other one was significantly more powerful on his GS1200. And, you know, in passing lane situations, he was gone and I couldn't quite keep up. I can get ahead of the cars. It wasn't in its own way. Mm-hmm. It's a little tiny 500. I mean, that's it, overweight with all the crap on it. Yeah. That bike I got. And I kind of realized, yeah, you don't need more. And if you're enjoying the sport of motorcycling, it shouldn't be to, you know, get your jollies. It shouldn't be to get that adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. It should be to be in the open air, have that more visceral feel of being part of the environment around you, to not having the cage and the the closed box that it is to be in a car, that when you've got that wind in your face, when you've got the feeling of having that control, the power right there underneath you, there's so much of a better feeling, so much more fun, so much more exciting. I mean, you can smell the road around you. You're not smelling, you know, six cars ago. Yeah. And my vehicle is always that way, right? With air pumped in, if I smell a smell, it's probably from a car I passed five minutes ago, finally getting through the filtration system and to my face. Right in the in the bike, you know where you are. You smell the alfalfa field. You smell the blooms of whatever it is. You're in the midst of it, and you can see everything: the mountains, the sky, the sunset. It's just so much of a better experience. But I, I agree with you. If we're not educating ourselves and those around us, mm-hmm. then there's a risk. And that's I think that's all I get from this is this proves that yeah, not having a cage is more risky. Yeah, but. When you look deeper into it, and again, we'll post this data, but when you look deeper into it, you see clearly that most of these issues, a large percentage, and I think if we break down the uh-ohs of some bad decision made between alcohol consumption, it talks about that in there, how significant that is in motorcycle fatalities. Yeah, yeah. Helmet or not helmet, helmet which yeah, looks like helmet, it really doesn't matter, but that's yeah. beside the point. Helmet, alcohol, having someone on the back, being a passenger... These issues of, of not driving safely that can all be avoided by just thinking and getting that education. If yeah. you understand and respect the uh, the sport, if you understand and respect your bike, that power that you've got, then you can do it safely. And, and am I going to, you know, I, I can't promise that you're never going to go down. Yeah. I, I've been lucky so far. Knock on wood. I'm not going to yeah. do it to, for the levels here. Um, but knock on wood, you know, I it's been very safe for me. But I know at some point I will go down. It's not really a, a, an if but a when. And I've heard that a hundred times. I have friends who are nurses. I have friends' wives who are nurses. And I fully understand that, that it's inevitable. However, controlling my environment lets it be a simple slide down. Right. Where my gear gets ruined. And I walk away, pick up the bike, ride it home. Ashamed that I did that and destroyed my bike by doing something. You know, by, by going down on wet leaves. By going down in a corner that caught me off guard with rocks. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, if I know that that's a corner I'm not aware of, I'm not going to come at it at full speed. 
Right. Well, you said you said something earlier that I thought was really uh, critical here is that uh, you were not going to be out riding a motorcycle for the adrenaline rush of at least how you are riding it. Right. You're going to be out enjoying the ride. Now that doesn't. I, I know that there's a fine line and that we can get into that for a long period of time. But I think really what it tells me is if I'm going to go out and I'm going to ride and I want to ride hard, I want to go into the corners fast. I want to come out of them fast. I want to be going. Uh, fast on straights on my bike that I really need to be doing that on a track and in a controlled environment where it's actually set up that if there is an incident, there's not 50 trees that I have to try to avoid in the process or sure. the large rocks and obstacles. I mean, they've it's cleaned up. So not saying that something bad can't happen, but it's in a better environment for it's it. Controlled environment. I mean, yeah. even on the roads, if you've if you're familiar with the corner, you know, that, that's how it was with the SRAM. There were areas I knew well, and I knew the corners well enough to know what kind of speed I could carry into them. Mm-hmm. But if I've never been on a road, I'm not, I'm not riding that hard through it because it's just not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth going down. It's not worth the injury. It's not worth repairing the bike. Yeah, but even it. for me, on my KLR250, it was, a, it was a blast to see how fast I could get to work sure. and home. And it was to the point where I was pushing it too much okay. and, because I'm like, I... This isn't good, right? I'm trying. I either need another bike, or I need to just take it a little easy because, sure. as much fun as I'm having and I'm not having any incidences, I'm. I could tell when I go on group rides and how other people are riding or talking about my riding that it was a little too much. Sure. I'm going. Oh, that's interesting. You don't ride like that. That's how I ride this the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's Strung important. out. And kind of going back to our initial talk of the, the group ride is it's nice to have that group. We've got that core group here that, that isn't trying you. to push each other up to you. the next level. Because you can see where other people are at and what's comfortable. And maybe you thought you were doing something the right way the whole time. And then you see somebody who actually knows how to go through a corner or what feels good. And you learn from that and go, oh, yeah, this is a lot more enjoyable doing yeah. it this way. Maybe I shouldn't go 85 on a freeway and my tires are wobbling like crazy or whatever the case is. So, Yeah, no, there's a lot of – and it all goes back to that, that education. And, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of it. You know, most states require some form of motorcycle safety. Sure. Coursework, whether it's state-supported, state, uh, whether it's the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, whatever it is, require you to take that education and get yourself some information to understand the dangers of motorcycling, but also understand the best way to start learning. But if there's anything I got out of my motorcycle safety course when I took it a few years back, is that, you know, you don't get out of it knowing how to ride right. But they give you the skills and the basic understanding to go practice. Sure. So where then when you're yeah. taking corners, you can focus on looking through the corner. You can focus on, you know, your, your well, approach angles. They give angles, us a foundation. Your apex. They a give foundation. you a foundation. To build off of. And, and it's important that to not only take those initial courses when you're getting into writing, but that continued education, whether that's you going out to a parking lot and practicing mm-hmm. those skills, finding kind of yeah, a closed, familiar area and practicing your cornering, looking through the corners, whatever it is, whether it's going and taking the advanced course every four years, whatever it is. It's very clear in the data set that the more educated and the yeah. smarter you ride, the safer it is. And I know that's a no-brainer, but... Clearly, there's issues. Clearly, we're looking at a data set that involves fatalities. There's people that aren't following that that simple. You can see who no has problem. had the most at uh, the most to lose 
is the group that was riding the safest. Yep. Right? Because they've got families, yeah. right? They've got they've got jobs, they've got to support their families. You got the ones that are just getting out of high school and they're they're out enjoying life, man. And they are gonna enjoy it to its fullest and you're learning the limits. And then you've got the others that I'm out and I'm gonna enjoy my I'm I'm retired or I'm about ready to retire, my kids are out of school. I'm out enjoying life in another way, and then but just crap happens, and that's the stuff that we can't control that we need to be aware of and how to work through those, and that's where the practice that you're talking about comes into play. Fair enough, yeah. So so don't be scared. That's not the point of this. wasn't to scare anyone off, but to kind of endorse the the importance of education and yeah. practice and being aware of your abilities and your bike's abilities and, and not pushing those limits. Yeah, and if you've got any comments, you got any suggestions, anything that you want to talk about in regards to this or tell us that we're idiots, let us know. Yeah, you can reach us, of course, at the website, slackermoto.com. Uh, slackermotoradio.com for the, the link directly to the podcast. You can always email us at slackermoto at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, there's also an email link through the website or a contact link there. Um, but yeah, we, we appreciate all the support we've gotten. It's been mm-hmm. a good time. Uh, we're getting things set up a little bit better as we go on. Uh, appreciate everybody that's new for last week and this week. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Australia. Yeah. Australia. There's, <laughs> that's yeah, awesome, man. Canada's picked up a little bit. We've got, uh, you some know, France, Europe, Portugal, some places, yeah. handful in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Bon dia to todo mundo lá. Okay. I'll give a little Portuguese into that for everybody in Portugal. Um, if you'd like, we'll do a whole episode in Portuguese, and Brad will just stare at me blind. Yeah. So he won't know what I'm talking yeah. about. Just tell me how to say one word that's <laughs> valuable. Motorcycle, maybe? Yeah, there you go. And then I'll say that off and on. That's just moto. Moto? Yeah. Okay. We're good. We're good. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay. We can but, do this. Uh, nonetheless, I know we're, we're spouting <laughs> off locations and whatnot, but we really appreciate all the support. Yeah. Appreciate everybody that's listening. Please rate and review. Uh, check out our website. Check out our Patreon page. If you want to help us out, we'd love it. Uh, we're still looking for that that first kickoff, um, but uh, nonetheless, it's something we'll at least continue throughout the year. And if we can figure out a way to, to let it kind of cover itself from there, we'll we'll keep it going. Um, but otherwise, we hope everybody has a great week. Weather's starting to pick up around the country, at least. Uh, hopefully, worldwide. I guess it's probably getting a little bit worse down in the southern hemisphere, but sure, Brazilians should keep riding nonetheless because yes. Brazil's awesome. Um. But otherwise, yeah, have a great weekend. Get out, ride a little bit, be safe. Ride on. Mm-hmm.